0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ, the... oh, what am I? How does one put into words the kind of person I am? How, other than Pisces, which has so much in it, how does one describe me? Ebullient, effervescent, full of rich emotional depths and complexity, a veritable tapestry of <laughs> affect as a Pisces. Those are all the descriptors I would use to describe myself. All the multitudes that are contained within the descriptor of Pisces. That is me. And this is my co host.
1: <laughs> and I'm Aaron.
0: And you are Uh your co host? He is an aries Uh headstrong, fiery, passionate yes intense yes <laughs> he's giving me very skeptical looks right now <laughs> but anyway we're coming before you on a rather somber day because um, as our listeners no doubt know a few days ago my own, one of my beloved sort of queer icons in my eyes the queen of england passed away at the age of 96 so we'll have a brief segment later in the show where I talk a little bit about that. Um, but for now, I just wanted to acknowledge the my own grief about the passing of the Queen, which is, I promise, genuine and not sarcastic. <laughs> so I'll get to that later. But for now, we'll talk a little bit about the movie that we're actually here to discuss. And we are going to be talking about I Love You, Philip Morris. This oh, week. And I love you, too. My name is not Philip Morris. Oh, wait see this is together almost six years and this guy doesn't even know my name but anyway do you want to give us a, just a brief summary aaron of the show or movie or shall i do it
1: uh let's see jim carrey and ewan mcgregor get it on and one of them's a con artist
0: you know if we were still doing the 15 words or less that would actually be quite that would actually be right on the nose and this was without any prompting or preparation so clearly aaron is at the top of his game today i'm very impressed That is a very apt description. Uh, To elaborate just a bit, it does star Jim Carrey as Stephen J. Russell, who is a con man, um, who goes to prison where he meets Ewan McGregor's Philip Morris, who is a delightfully twinkie character. They fall in love. Stephen keeps working to try to get Philip out of jail, pretends to be a lawyer, among other things, then starts embezzling money to sort of support a very lavish lifestyle that he creates for Philip unfortunately the bottom falls out
1: if you'll forgive the expression <laughs> like which one's the bottom my guess would be remember, i would guess <laughs> philip is the
0: bottom if i had to if i were a betting person i would say that it's probably philip and then they both go back to prison philip gets very angry sort of breaks up with um Stephen, Stephen fakes having aids and basically fakes his own death mm-hmm. but then of course goes back to prison ultimately but is still in love with philip so that's kind of the rundown of the plot of the film and so, for my part, I really enjoyed this film. I've been meaning to watch it for a long time. I mean, when I first heard it announced, I was like, oh my god, Ewan McGregor's going to be in a gay movie again? <laughs> and I mean, I've had a very long-standing crush on Ewan McGregor, as I'm sure many millennials have. Um, both Not just millennials. Not just millennials, I'm sure, <laughs> people in general. Um, not just because of Moulin Rouge, but also because of his other roles. Obviously, he was in Velvet Goldmine, also in a queer role, so... There's a lot of queer valences to Ewan McGregor, I think, that this film makes explicit. But I think that I have to say that even though as much as I love Ewan and I think he is a really charismatic actor and brings a lot to his role of Philip Morris, and we can talk about that, there's no question that the MVP of this film is Jim okay, Carrey. Yes. Like he, and I mean, I've, had a, I've long admired Jim Carrey. I had a crush on him when he played Ace Ventura way back in the day. And I think that, you know, he was at the height of his stardom throughout the 90s so by the time this film comes out in like the like 2010 you know he's not quite the big star that he would have been sorry 2009 um he's not quite the big star that he would have been 20 years previously but even so i did find him to be a really fascinating character
1: and to be fair he is someone who had been a big star it's not like just sort of an actor who's approaching a certain age at that point uh who didn't already have that kind of persona he's banking on the fact Mm. that he's had that persona for a long time already
0: right and i mean he does bring to steven a truly kind of like it's hard to put into words the kind of energy that Jim Carrey just seems to have. It's an elastic kind of energy. Yes. Like, he's elastic and dynamic in a way that is truly unique. Like, the mobility of his features and his body is almost what you would expect of, like, a silent film star, mm-hmm. where so much was conveyed through movement yes. in, instead of sound. But he's also, like, his, it's partially his face. Uh, He has a very expressive and emotive mobile face. Like, he can do things with his facial features that are just Mm -hmm. remarkable. And he brings that out with Steven. But it's also his body. Like, the way he moves through space is Mm -hmm. often very fluid, but jerky. I don't know. It's kind of a study in contradictions, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's all thrown back to his early days back on In Living Color. If you've been a fan of Jim Carrey since then, you know that from the very first season of that show that that's the kind of talent that he brings really to anything since that was a variety show. You got to play tons and tons mm-hmm. of roles. So you got to see it on display. Anybody who, who didn't foresee his sort of rise to stardom just wasn't paying attention because he really is legendary right. <laughs> in terms of his ability to do the stuff the tg's describing here
0: right and i mean that's i think that's what makes him such a great casting choice for steven who is a con man who is very skilled and very adept at moving through spaces and basically convincing people that he is something that he is not Mm -hmm. and i think that a, a less talented actor that would have seemed hackneyed or silly and it is silly certainly but i think that part of carrie's brilliance as an actor is that he can bring out both drama and comedy in the same role. And there are very few other actors who can do that with such skill. The late Robin Williams, I think, would be the only one I can think of that mm-hmm. has a comparable ability to do that. Yeah, Because, um, you know, there's all these moments, particularly like in the early parts of the film, where he's sort of embracing the con man identity to be wealthy in Miami, because he moves to Miami after he comes out. And so he's, like, you know, able to move through these different spaces and to convince people that he is someone he is not. Precisely because he's just so charismatic. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, like, we believe that as viewers because Jim Carrey is himself so charismatic. Maybe exactly. And so, you know, we have these early moments where he's. <laughs> There are moments of sex, like he's having sex with his wife, who's played by the divine Leslie Mann, which we'll get to that later, mm-hmm. which, of course, that is played for laughs.
1: Yeah, really, really funny. <laughs> <laughs> it,
0: it reminds me a bit, to go back to a throwback to an earlier episode of from Serial Mom, where Sam Watterson and Kathleen Turner are having sex. Mm-hmm. Not quite as absurd as that, but not far from it, because they're having sex, and then he's like, I think I discovered who my mom is, because mm-hmm. it's it revealed that he's adopted, and they're in the middle of sex, and he says to his wife, like, I think I, you know, I, I, he was a policeman, and so ended up finding the information he needed to find his, his mother, and his, she's like, so what are we doing here? Like, and he's like, let me, finish. And then, yeah, exactly. let me finish. And so he finishes, you know, having his orgasm, and then runs off. Yes. And of <laughs> course, then we see him having sex with other men, which is how we find out that he's gay. Other than, mm-hmm. other than the fact that he plays Oregon in his church, which is always a dead giveaway yes, yeah. in the South. If you're a Southern man... And you're the organist in your church. You're gay. Like that's just. I'm sorry. That's just how it is. I don't make the rules. That is just canonically true. Mm
1: -hmm. A lot of men just found out about themselves right when you said that. Uh,
0: Yeah, this is my P.S. Gay. If, as I said, if you are a southern man and you're playing the organ in church, you're queer. That's all. I'm I'm sorry. We'll send you your welcome back welcome package. Uh, Pun intended. Anyway, so I just find that Jim Carrey is just so damn good in this role, that I love this character from the moment that we meet him till the very end. hmm And it's, I mean, because I, I think that that's what, when we'll get to this a little later, what gives the film its kind of bite is that we cheer on Jim Carrey's, we cheer on Steven because in typical American fashion, we always cheer for the underdog, even if the underdog happens to be a criminal.
1: <laughs> Not even just say we cheer for the criminal.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, he is just, he is a criminal. Like, that's just the, that. but... To speak just briefly about Ewan McGregor, um, his Philip Morris, the moment we meet him, he really does capture, and I think I said this to you while we were watching the film, a certain kind of Southern gay twink. Mm-hmm. Like everything from his like reddish blonde hair to his very de- delicate Southern accent, mm-hmm. like everything about it is just perfectly. I mean, I literally knew someone like Philip Morris mm-hmm. in undergrad. Like, it's crazy how skilled he is at, like, sort of inhabiting that space, that body. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's, there's, he's adorable. Like, I don't think there's any other way to say it. And it's true. I mean, it's obvious from the beginning that both Philip and Stephen have a really profound bond with one another. And I think it's really fun to see... Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor kind of acting opposite one another because they're just so different in terms of their acting styles. Like, Ewan is, you know, for the most part, a very serious actor. Not that he can't play comedy. Obviously, he can. But he's not the same kind of comedian Mm -hmm. that that Stephen slash Jim Carrey is. And it's so obvious that he's kind of, like, bowled over by Stephen when they first meet. Like, it's just... They meet in the library, in the prison... And it's clear that Stephen is very smitten with Philip, as one would be. I mean, it's Ewan McGregor as a blondish twink, like, who wouldn't be mm-hmm. smitten? But it's clear that Philip is also smitten, but also kind of overwhelmed. Yes. And I think that there's, there's something very cute about that. So speaking of prison, I do want to sort of dwell for a few moments on the way the film depicts prison. Because this is a black comedy, and it is a sat, you know, sort of satirical film in a way. And so what I think it does very well is to show us, you know, how these two people kind of make an island of peace and serenity within the admittedly very brutal world of Mm -hmm. the prison. Like it doesn't, the the film doesn't give us kind of a utopian vision of what prison looks like. It's a very clearly unpleasant place. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Stephen, with his usual charisma and ability to like charm everyone in his reach, has a sort of skill at, getting everything he wants out of prison like he's learned how to game the system of mm-hmm. the prison in much the same way he's done outside of prison
1: well, he is a damn good con artist he is
0: really a damn good con artist so he's able to like eventually get into the same cell as philip because when they meet philip is about to be moved to a different wing of the prison but uh, steven manages to get in with him because of his skill at doing that mm-hmm. and he also and this is one of the more vexing shall we say parts he ends up bribing one of the other prisoners to beat up the guy known as the screecher i think is what he's called because he just screams all night and Mm -hmm. annoys philip Mm -hmm. he pays someone else basically to beat this guy up in the yard Mm -hmm. which of course is meant to show how devoted he is to philip and making philip's life easier but it's Mm -hmm. also vaguely horrifying (laughs) that Stephen would go to such a length to do such a thing Mm mm-hmm
1: but that's a, a sort of a scene that sort of is also used to, of course, remind us of the the violence that frequently happens in places like this. Despite the fact that, of course, these two are kind of setting up their love nest. But we also see how, in other ways, um, Stephen makes use of the the unpleasant realities of prison as part of mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. his schemes to get what he wants. Like he does and using violence to get that guy beaten up, but also to mask his own sort of attempts to get out mm-hmm. <laughs> with everything because he engineers another situation where he ends up getting in trouble. Right. <laughs> but he's doing it, of course, knowing that he's got a plan to actually get out. Right. As opposed to him falling victim to the the again the violence of the sadly largely unregulated violence that happens amongst inmates.
0: Right. I and I, I actually just want to pause for a minute and just say I love the term unregulated violence. Because like, mm-hmm. I think that's something that we see in a lot of like pop culture presentations of prison is the way that... Obviously, the guards are sort of there as the institutional means of enforcing control and discipline. Mm-hmm. But so often, they turn a blind eye to mm-hmm. the like really kind of ugly violence that takes place in prison. Yep. And so every time I... I mean, obviously, other comedies have played with this... Orange is the New Black being a notable example, even Brooklyn Nine-Nine to Mm -hmm. an extent. And I think this film joins those other representations and really kind of presenting to us a vision of prison that doesn't shy away from the ugliness, but also shows the kind of indomitable spirit often of people who live in these Mm -hmm. ugly environments. So, like, I think that that takes a real deftness, a deft touch, if you will, to kind of be able to tease out that complicated dynamic. Yeah. So I think one of the most like representative scenes of this of this of this um, of this dynamic is where Stephen and, and Philip you know are sort of trying to have a romantic moment in their cell, and they manage to convince the janitor who is their go has been their go between to play music for them. <laughs> and then the prison the guards come by, and all of this takes place. You, the camera stays focused on Philip and Stephen dancing. Oh, yes, but off screen you can hear the. Very heavy set uh, inmate getting accosted by the guards who are, like, turn the music off. And he's like, My word is my bond. And he's like, <laughs> screams this repeatedly. Even as we hear the, the, the brutal violence of like the state, which of course yes. is the guards, Aaron's going to harass me. We can hear the carceral <laughs> violence of the state.
1: <laughs> Just can't help yourself.
0: <laughs> I cannot help myself. You can take the boy out of the academy, but you can't take the academy out of the boy. You hear them start beating this prisoner like quite brutally. Mm-hmm. Like we know it's going to be very awful because you know the guards have no incentive to like spare the rod. But the guard, but the prisoner for his part is like, I'm not going to go back on my word. So there's a lot that's going on here because mm-hmm. it's obviously very funny. Yes. Like it's played for laughs, but it's also horrifying because mm-hmm. we're conscious of the violence. But it's also like symbolically meaningful because it is this moment where like prisoners are fighting back in the only way they can, by sort of both Philip and Stephen are fighting back because they're establishing their little gay utopia, but the janitor is also fighting back and refusing to follow the rules, because in this just you know this very horrifying system there is still a sense of ju- or not justice, um, honor. Mm-hmm. There is a code that you follow, even in this lawless world of the prison. Exactly. And so I just... I don't know. It was a really powerful and surprisingly complex moment mm-hmm. and i did not expect to see it And i know that you had said you wanted to teach this moment because of its sound design because <laughs> it is really well constructed cinematically speaking
1: exactly because what makes it work so well is we're hearing all of the stuff that T.J. just talked about but like you said the camera never wavers from its fixation on our our on the main couple <laughs> you know in the scene so you have this sort of touching visual <laughs> with this You know, juxtapose against this, you know, comically horrific (laughs) sound design. And it just makes the entire scene work so well. Like I said, it felt really sophisticated. Mm -hmm. You know, in a movie that I think, for me, plays the sophistication at what I think is the right level. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get so caught up in its own sophistication that it stops being funny. Because it's supposed to be funny. (laughs) And, you know, it, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it takes that moment. Right. To actually be sort of creatively interesting.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, as another sort of brief aside, what I found refreshing about this film, and as I was thinking about it as we were prepping, is, you know, we kind of, when we were outlining what we were going to talk about, we kind of struggled for a bit to figure out what to say. Because, I mean, it seems on the surface to just be a regular run-of-the-mill comedy, but I think that's part of its brilliance. And I think that's, what is nice about this film is that, it's a kind of movie that we don't see a lot anymore. Like we live in this age as we has been written about extensively, like of temples and franchises and blockbusters and all this stuff. Like Mm -hmm. one of the casualties of that are these smaller dramas that were once a relatively established and stable part of the film landscape. Yep. And so I think that that's part of the reason, you know, obviously we founded this podcast and, and to begin with was to draw attention to some of these lesser known films precisely because they don't really even get made anymore, mm-hmm. except arguably they may have, it, a little bit of it has migrated to television, but it's, in the age of streaming, everything is uncertain, because if you don't, if you're not algorithm friendly, you might as well kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> so, I don't know, that's just, I, I just wanted to mention that as a brief aside, because I think that is one of the things that I think is most interesting about this at a meta-textual level. Mm-hmm.
1: And for me, and folks have heard me say this before, I always just like any opportunity where a gay movie gets to just be a movie. Right. Where, you know, this doesn't have to be some groundbreaking work of cinema. It doesn't have to be important. It can just be a fun little movie.
0: Right, exactly. A fun little prison romantic comedy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, of course, you know, the, the early part of the film is weighted towards, you know, establishing the relationship between Philip and... Uh, Stephen and you know, but at one point Stephen finally gets close to getting out and then things really start to get even more uh, accelerated Mm -hmm. because first he manages to basically like game the system so that Philip can get released and Mm -hmm. then he sets out and basically gets hired on at this huge firm by bullshitting mm-hmm. and in this sense those were the parts of the film where i felt most like it was in conversation with catch me if you can mm, yes that very famous like film with leonardo, leonardo dicaprio and tom hanks and i heard someone refer to this film as basically brokeback mountain meets <laughs> catch me if you can and i think that's a very good tagline like that's the sort of if i had to summarize it that's what i would say because mm-hmm. those are the moments when we get the sense that Steven really knows how systems work. And that's what I think is real. So two things are basically needed to be a con man from what I know. I'm not a con man. Just yes, he the, is. I just want to put that on the record that I'm not someone who is, I'm too, I'm too honest. Like I'm not, I, I'm not slick enough to mm, be.
1: I don't know. I think saying I'm not a con man is exactly what a con man would say.
0: Perhaps you made me right. <laughs> but if I am a con man, I'm not a very successful one. <laughs> But part of, you know, from my understanding, at least from cinema and from, you know, the pop culture world, is that to be a successful con man, you have to both be very charming and charismatic, and you have to understand how systems work, because then you understand how to manipulate the system for your own benefit. Uh-huh. So it's very soon after Steven gets hired onto this firm, and that I didn't understand this part because I don't know how money works, really, other than how to spend it, but he finds <laughs> a loophole that allows him to basically invest a huge amount of money that's coming into the company and then he skims his top he, it, skims, he skims, skims off the
1: top. the top yeah he invests uh, money in an interest-bearing account instead of just holding it in a standard escrow account so he can just earn extra money without anybody noticing
0: right and then he's obviously embezzling mm-hmm. um, and all and this only comes to light because one of his colleagues at the at the office basically doesn't like him and wants to rat him out and so discovers it and everything, the bottom falls out. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me, I mean, at first it may seem like Stephen is just doing this because he can't help himself. But and that was true earlier in the film. So their film sort of sets up a you know a juxtaposition between when he first moves to Miami, he becomes a con man to sort of live of the life that he thinks he should be leading as a gay man, like the sort of affluence that one sees in Miami. Think of the birdcage, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so he does it at that point because he just wants to be a rich gay man, which, I mean, right. fair enough. Right. I, I, too, would feel the, the pinch of that desire. Um, you know, but the second round of his great success as a con man is more romantically motivated, and one gets the sense that he really is doing it because he thinks Philip deserves this. Uh-huh. And I think that that is where uh, sort of one of the moments of character growth and development that we see is because he's doing all this not just for himself and his own desires, but for Philip. Right. And I think that that's an interesting moment that, you know, is really heavy and significant for what happens as the film develops. mm
1: mm-hmm. And also, I just wanted to say, too, there is also something, I think, interesting about, uh, you know, this not just being sort of like an image of sort of fabulous gay life in Miami, but we're talking about a southern man's mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of take on that kind of fabulousness. Uh, you know, coming from a background uh, that's a bit more conservative, a bit more religious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, coming from that and then coming to Miami as a place of sort of freedom and escape. The kind of, like, over-the-top lavishness uh, that somebody in that position might bring to their expectations mm-hmm. about what life might be like, I think is also important.
0: Yeah. And it's also significant, I think, that for Stephen, like, Philip... Because Philip loves him so unconditionally, mm-hmm. because there's such a ro- profound romantic bond, it provides Stephen the one thing he never had in his life, because one of the first scenes we get of him is as a child when his parents reveal he was adopted, mm-hmm. which clearly is like this moment of like primal trauma for him that he never really gets over. Because mm-hmm. even when he you know, discovers his birth mother, she's just like, I don't know who the fuck you are, basically. But mm-hmm. she does clearly, and then she, but she still shuts the door in his face. And so, you know, he tries briefly to live the kind of life that's expected of a straight person, but that doesn't work. So he lives the life of a gay person, but that's also not particularly helpful or as fulfilling as he would have liked it to be. Mm -hmm. But it's only with Philip that he gets that sense of actual completeness. And so part of his motivation for doing all of these criminal things is to protect the one part of his life that gives him that sense of stability that he's always lacked. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I think there's something both very poignant and also very tragic about that. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think you're right. Although, uh, for the next thing that I want to bring up, I I think you might overstate it just a bit when you're like, he only sort of gets that from Philip. Because I think now is a good time to actually talk about his wife. Okay. Because, of course, before Philip becomes a character. Uh of course we have Stephen, you know, getting married to a woman. <laughs> right. Her name is Debbie, and she's
0: played by as I said by Leslie Man.
1: And so of course we have that, you know, happen uh relatively short lived mm-hmm. uh, marriage before it becomes clear that he is not heterosexual. <laughs> and so that marriage ends but ends in like the most amicable way possible and what we see throughout and what i thought was actually kind of surprising is that we see throughout the movie mm-hmm. he stays close <laughs> with debbie
0: right yeah the first person he calls after the the huge embezzling scheme goes south as he's driving home in his convertible is debbie mm-hmm. so i think that you're right and i mean i love leslie man i've loved her ever since i saw her in georgia the jungle like way back in the day And, you know, she's never been, like, an A-list star, necessarily. But there's just something very bubbly and nice about her.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: she's just... I don't know. I've always loved her. And I really wish she was more, like, high-profile. I mean, she's married to Jed Apatow, so I guess she's really winning in the game. So I'm not, like... (laughs) I'm sure she's fine with her career. (laughs) I just would like to see her. Because I just think she's so kind. And she brings out such kindness in this role. Mm -hmm. Because she says something effective, like, I think Jesus still has a role for you. Which, Mm -hmm. you know, we're so used to seeing religious bigotry particularly in the south like yeah. but it's kind of refreshing i think to see this kind of this is a different very much a different take on that and i appreciated that we have this role for her
1: mm-hmm. and i love how it uh That shows that, you know, the two of them, Debbie and Steven, genuinely do love one another. They remain sort of consistently supportive in the ways that they know how to do Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Because, of course, Steven's got his his own limitations in terms of how he does that. Uh, You know, in particular with Debbie and their kid (laughs) is that, uh, you know, he tries to lavish lots of money. On them so of course when he's doing all of this embezzling to provide this fabulous life for himself and for Philip he's also sending huge sums of money <laughs> back to Debbie and to to their kid uh, to make sure that you know that he's able to provide and and at least do that dad thing mm-hmm. if he can't be the sort of typical husband and father at least he can do this right
0: yeah and I mean I liked that about this film I'm I'm glad that they kept debbie in as a role because it does help us to see steven as not just someone who hairs off after his after he comes out and leaves his family in the lurch but as Hmm. someone who i mean because i think that that adds a layer of weight also to his relationship with philip because it means that he's not the kind of person who just loves and leaves people Mm -hmm. like it means that he actually values relationships and i think that if that didn't have that it would make him much less sympathetic as a character. It would make us as, as the audience not really like him that much. Mm-hmm. But as it is, we do see him as someone who clearly is yearning after something. Like he's yearning to fill that gap in his life that's engendered by his family's rejection of him mm. and of his you know, his birth mother's rejection. So he's like always yearning toward that. Yes. And so in that sense, I think it's significant that I don't want to push this in this particular interpretation too far, but it is, I think, revealing that it's the gay relationship that ends up being the one that is the most subversive of the, like, to, re- right, to re- reiterate what I said earlier, the castle state. Like mm-hmm. it's the, 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 it's that dynamic that he has with Philip that allows him to sort of stand as a living critique of prison and the way that we treat prisoners. Like, does it make sense what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that, you know, it's the gay relationship that points out how horrible and unjust ultimately often the like the institutions of criminal justice can be
1: mm-hmm uh-huh. exactly because frankly it's that system that sort of gets in the way of these two really sort of nice characters right. <laughs> being able to have just sort of a nice life together I mean where do they meet of course in prison <laughs> that's going to be a barrier kind of no matter
0: what mm-hmm Right, and I mean, it starts from the very, like, as I said, the get-go is that, you know, they're going to be separated at first because Philip is being moved. And then when Stephen is leaving prison, like, Philip runs after him and says, I love you, and then that's whenever we get the title, whenever Stephen shouts back, I love you, Philip Morris. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his entire motivation thereafter is to get back to Philip and to make sure that Philip is living the life that he feels he deserves. And there's something very sweet about that because... You know, we're given not as much of an understanding of what motivates Philip as a character, just because he's not on screen as much. He's not really the sort of subject per se. Mm -hmm. But from what we glean, we get the sense that Philip is the kind of—he's as as Sophia says of Rose in *The Golden Girls*. He's very simple, naive childlike mm-hmm. like and as someone who is also simple naive and childlike i think that <laughs> perhaps that's why i sympathize with philip because he has this moment in, the, in their cot where he's relating to steven his various boyfriends that he's had and it's clear that they have exploited his kind of naivete mm-hmm. whereas and i think that's part of the reason steven feels such a strong motivation to take him under his wing is because for a, pe- for a person like philip it is so easy for them to be taken advantage yes. of yes and especially among certain certain kinds of men very easily have no compunction about doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, again, it, w- it adds a, le- a level of weightiness to the romance that wouldn't have been other- there otherwise, mm-hmm. I think. And I love how it also then sets up
1: sort of its own undoing a bit there, where despite uh, Stephen's, I think, sincere desire to kind of look after Philip to protect him, of course, because Stephen's a con artist, it's going to end up implicating philip no matter what because because of the only way that that steven knows how to be in the world <laughs> means that it's going to end up hurting the person that he's actually trying to protect <laughs>
0: exactly right and that is as you say that is the one thing that almost sunders their relationship is whenever you know Stephen had opened up accounts in philip's name implicating him and making it seem as if he was a part of this not to be fair i do think that philip cries of innocence are a bit forced like I think that part of him had to recognize that you know the lavishness of their lifestyle was so hyperbolic it had to be questionable like Mm -hmm. there are moments when you sense that when he's like wow they gave you a Christmas bonus in June and again but again as a Pisces who is willing to live in a universe of my own making rather than (laughs) the one that is actually in the world I think that I sympathize with Philip and I think that, but at the same time like Philip, you had to know something was amiss. Yeah, like you can't completely claim absolute innocence here. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it turns out, you you can't keep them apart. Like there's the the bond between them is too strong. And so as we the movie moves into its kind of final act, after they've broken up and Stephen is kind of despairing, he starts to waste away. We get this montage where he's like mm-hmm. throwing up, and we see how emaciated he's become. Mm-hmm. And then we flash back to the beginning because the film opens with a voiceover with him like lying sick and dying on a bed and flatlining. And it's revealed that he is, a, we think for a very brief time that he has AIDS, but then it's revealed of course that that is itself a con. Yes. <laughs> because um, his first lover, which we do get you know a little bit of attention and we, I haven't mentioned him before, but we'll talk about him now. His first sort of long-term boyfriend is Jimmy played by Rodrigo Santoro who, if you have watched the film Three Hundred, he plays Xerxes. He's unrecognizable um, in this role as Xerxes, but it's important to note that I think. And it's revealed that actually Jimmy did die of AIDS, <laughs> and so there's a lot going on there. Right. Um, there's a lot going on, and I think that of all the things that Stephen does, that's the one that reads to me as the most like morally questionable. Yeah, as a gay man. And as you you said earlier, that the only way Stephen knows of living in the world is to be a con man. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the moment when we see how, not just, it's not just humorous, it's deeply pathological. Mm -hmm. And obviously I use that term very deliberately because he's literally faking the illness that A, took his former lover, Mm -hmm. and as I'm sure Stephen has to know, given that this is all taking place in the 90s, Mm -hmm. took the lives of millions of gay men. Like it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's like, Okay, Stephen, I, I was with you up until this point, And I'm just like, mm, this is very cringy. even amongst all the other stuff. Like, I'm willing to see you take down, like, prison and, you know, this obviously probably corrupt businessman. Like, that stuff I can get on board with, but mm-hmm. faking AIDS to get out of prison... It, means, it makes me a little queasy. yeah I mean
1: because it, it's a tough one to deal with but it's like there's so much to unpack there it's like because on one hand I'm with you mm-hmm. but on the other hand I'm just kind of like why not let this gay man take advantage of this sort of gay tragedy narrative right. to get what he wants so like why, why not do that and then even beyond that like you said it's also the disease that did take the life of his lover Maybe that's his way of working with the pain (laughs) of doing this. He's kind of taking ownership of this thing that not only just sort of theoretically as a gay man affected him, but very directly (laughs) as someone who lost a lover. It's like, if that's his way of claiming ownership of that narrative, okay.
0: Yeah, I, I actually like that. and that, So I think there's t- a couple other things worth noting. One, the reason we have this flashback that occurs, because we don't know what happens to Jimmy up till this point. Like, we've got mm-hmm. him in the early part of the film, then he kind of disappears after Stephen goes to jail. Mm-hmm. We assume, because Jimmy's like, I don't want to be with you anymore because you're a criminal. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's because he died of AIDS. Yeah. And there's a really poignant scene where he basically, like, gives his blessing to Stephen to, like, pursue love afterward. Because he's mm-hmm. like, I wasn't the one who was your one. Mm-hmm. But you'll find it, and I think I want that for you which is obviously very a very benevolent thing to say but mm-hmm. you know i liked that and there's a lot of pathos in that scene it's also very interesting that the reason Stephen gets away with this, as he points out, is because they don't ever actually test him mm-hmm. for AIDS. Yeah. Because there is still a great deal of, at least in the time this film was set, like in the, in the 90s, like mm-hmm. there's still so much stigma around gay people mm-hmm. that he gets away. Like that's part of the reason he gets away with it is because no, it doesn't even occur to anyone to test him because he's able to feign the symptoms and to like trigger the other, you know, to to trigger other bodily responses, and to fudge the paperwork, so that it looks like his T cell count is off. Is off. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff can happen because when it comes right down to it, he's doubly abject, both as a gay man supposedly suffering from AIDS and as a prisoner. Yeah, and I was gonna
1: say it's not even just doubly abject. It's like that the two actually kind of have to build on each other, right? Because it's really it really only makes sense in in a place like a prison for that to happen like Mm -hmm. i I don't see this scam working right anywhere else because if he says he's got aids and he's showing symptoms and of course as an inmate the prison has to provide care for him and all this kind of stuff why waste the resources on a test (laughs) Right.
0: right exactly and there's also that you know there's the special um care that they're giving is like part of a special program and then mm-hmm. so there is is it's subtle but i still think it's there there is this indictment of the way that both health systems but also the prison system basically treats its inmates or patients as nothing more than just bodies to be moved around like yeah. it strips them of their humanity so in that sense i think i, I agree with your analysis ultimately then that We cheer for Philip because we're, or at least we're being encouraged to cheer for Philip because he's calling that system to account Mm -hmm. or exploiting it. Because why not? Like it's exploiting him, so why shouldn't he do the same? Exactly. (laughs) And so I think that that is what makes this film such, gives it such a brilliant satirical bite that is so subtle that you, if you know, if you were just watching it as a. I don't want to sound dismissive, but as a layperson, like someone who's not one of us, like not an academic in criticism, might not necessarily see the bite, but would laugh along with it. But I think when you really dig down, you can see the way in which the film is very clearly roasting alive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we f- cheer for Philip um, in the same way that we cheer for many criminals. Like American culture, generally speaking, tends to love criminals. Mm-hmm. I mean, despite the fact that we're a deeply like carceral f- obsessed culture we also tend to love our criminals especially certain kinds of them and it helps that philip is white collar like
1: Mm -hmm. and that he's white and he's yeah a
0: big very important thing to note so as a white collar white criminal we can uh, cheer him on in a way that we not would not necessarily if it was a different kind of like violent crime or if it was you know he was a person of color for example so i think that that also you know allows us to or that's what enables it to partake in that particular kind of discourse. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the all of this brings us ultimately to the epilogue where, you know, Philip, after having faked his death and returned as, or sorry, Stephen has faked his death and has returned as Philip's lawyer. So at this point, Philip thinks that Stephen is dead because mm-hmm. he has no way of knowing. So, you know, there is that, there's a couple of poignant scenes where he realizes and then he wants to go visit. Stephen but he's denied the opportunity to do so which you know is symptomatic of what we've talked about this dynamic throughout the film is that the prison is the thing holding them apart like it's the institutions and the people built into those institutions that keep this gay couple separated and then Philip is called in to meet his lawyer Mm -hmm. who as it turns out is Stephen and I mean Philip is understandably Irate, mm, yes, as I probably would be mm-hmm. too if the person that I loved you know more than life itself it had pretended to be dead the whole time but really wasn't. Um, so, word to Aaron: if you ever pretend that you're dead <laughs> and, and you're not really, I will be very angry with you. But if, even then, it's clear that Philip just loves Stephen so much, and Stephen obviously loves Philip so much. That, they, that nothing will keep them apart.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, although it turns out that's not exactly true, because in the epilogue, it's revealed that because Stephen managed to make a huge fool of the state of Texas, <laughs> which was under the governorship of... George W. Bush at the time, <laughs> um, that it came down with the iron fist of, of justice, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, Philip, who I want to reiterate, has not really done any bodily harm to anyone, mm-hmm. has not committed a violent crime at any point, is now sentenced to like several life sentences. Mm, Stephen. I mean, Stephen, yeah, sorry. Stephen is sentenced to several life sentences and restricted to basically like 23 hour a day solitary confinement mm-hmm. and is only allowed like an hour a day. Yeah. Like this is this is the part that's really that when this comes up in the epilogue, really I think is what gives it the tragic weight that it has. Like some people have described this as like a hilarious tragedy, and I think this is where the, mm-hmm. the, the that bite really comes in. It's like this is the the sting in the tail of the film. I've, I've had all sorts of metaphors today, <laughs> so like, you must forgive me. I had a very large iced coffee before, that, <laughs> you know? and so you know the epilogue reveals that and as the tradition is with real life like these kinds of stories they always have to give the little snippets at the end to tell you what happens to the characters and then we learn that Philip has been you know basically imprisoned I think un- a little extremely and it's suggested and I think there's probably a lot of truth to this that in a state like Texas does not like to be made fools of mm-hmm. and like someone has to pay mm-hmm. and of course it's going to be Stephen mm-hmm. But of course, since we've been led to identify with and to cheer on for Stephen, we don't like that necessarily. Exactly. Like, right. We are led to see the injustice of it, not in what Stephen has done, which admittedly is criminal, but the real, crim- the real crime here is that he's being like, held in such restrictive Confinement.
1: Yeah, exactly. And me being me, I'm just kind of like, I find the <laughs> the multiple life sentences ridiculous. I find the solitary 23 hours of day ridiculous. But giving him a very long sentence actually makes a lot of sense. Because he's proven himself to be completely and utterly, one, unrepentant about mm-hmm. his crimes. Mm-hmm. And two... Absolutely insistent on continuing them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, he needs to be in prison for a long time because he's not going to quit.
0: <laughs> sure. But, I mean... Isn't he really the inner Marxist, like, Robin figure for all of us? Like, isn't he the little guy fighting back against the institutions of financial capital (laughs) in the prison state? But but, but
1: that's also why Dr. King sat in a cell. You know, it's like, because if you do that work, you also take the punishment Mm. that goes with it. That's the other part of that equation.
0: Right. I mean, I'm not saying, I don't want to say that this film is some kind of, like, prison abolition manifesto. (laughs) Because it isn't. But I do think that it is a pretty powerful critique of what, you know we sort of assume these systems to be like, Mm -hmm. I think that part of what gives makes Steven such a compelling character. And I think, again, a lot of this goes back to what I said at the top of the show, because Carrie is just so charismatic that we want him to succeed Mm -hmm. and we want their gay romance to succeed. And if it's the institutions, whether it's of financial capital, whether it's of the carceral state or whatever that are interfering with that, because we've been led to identify with the individual subject we want that to succeed. We want those subjects to succeed. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what makes it such a, I mean, a far more brilliant film. Even, I don't think I actually knew how really subtle and smart it is till I sat down to like start talking about it. Like it wasn't until that, that I sort of, all the pieces kind of came together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, ultimately Steven is still in prison. At least I think, at least as I, as, as I checked the other day, um, is still <laughs> surfing And although, ironically, Philip was released. Mm -hmm. um, And actually, I was just, as I was doing research for the show, was uncredited in a cameo as one of the lawyers present at Stephen's sentencing. Oh! So that's interesting. So I think there's a lot going on in this film that more than meets the eye, perhaps. And, I mean, at the time, it was very highly regarded. Like, it's got a very strong Rotten Tomatoes score, and it's often viewed as one of Jim Carrey's best roles, and I think there's a lot to that. And it does, again, it's a testament to why we shouldn't dismiss comedy actors, because I think that in some ways they're even better actors than drama actors. Oh, yeah. I I mean, mean, because I think sometimes they have
1: to... I think people who know stuff already
0: know that. I know, but I mean, there are people who don't know things. So I'm just, I'm saying this for their benefit. Fair enough. (laughs) So I think that that's a pretty natural place to end. Like, I think that we've done a pretty good job of explicating this film. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're not an academic, that means like interpreting, basically, and analyzing.
1: It means explaining.
0: Someone's being a little bit pedantic.
1: Well, explique is French for to explain.
0: (laughs) But anyway, so so I think that this film is really good. I think that it's a testament to everyone involved. And I hope that, you know, one last thing I did want to say. So even though it ends with, obviously, the epilogue of uh, Stephen being imprisoned, our last shot of him is actually him fleeing from the prison guards who are pursuing him Mm -hmm. so i actually wanted to say something about that because i do think that that is both one very funny because it's jim carrey running in the way that only he could run but it's also like to put it signifies that philip or sorry that Stephen is going to continue like fighting back against the system so our last image of him is of him still refusing to obey the rules Mm -hmm. and i think there's something liberatory about that like something ludic and you know exciting and very funny and it all works really well together
1: exactly and also like i said why he deserves that long sentence because that's just what he's gonna do
0: (sighs) yes well anyway so hopefully one day he will be eligible or he will be released but we'll we'll see
1: and and he'll get out and the real guy will get out and go right back to committing crime oh i am absolutely
0: (laughs) i am absolutely sure that that is exactly what will happen well, that seems like a good place to end our general discussion. So, give us a moment to refresh ourselves, and then we'll be right. Re- well, try that again. We'll be right back to talk about Queen Elizabeth, and we also have an "Are You Even Gay?" segment for you. Alright, well, as I alluded to at the top of the show, the other day, I woke up to the news that Queen Elizabeth was ailing, and I knew that the end was nigh. Like, there's a way that you can read the, the tea leaves. It's not, very, it's not very, like, subtle, despite the, the closed-mouthedness of the, of the crown, generally speaking. And, I mean, I know that this may not be a popular attitude among some of our listeners, but I genuinely grieve for Elizabeth, both as a figure for whom I've had a lot of admiration for her long longevity, the fact that she is a symbol of continuity and stability. I think there's a lot to say about that, especially in our unsettled age that we live in. And mm-hmm. so I've always admired the Queen because for whatever you may say about her, I think that she did devote a lot of her life to the institution of the crown, and she took her duties seriously. Like, I think that there's a lot to be said about that, that you see yourself as someone who is a person for your people to look up to Mm -hmm. and i mean for i mean i know that for many millennials like me like it's almost impossible to imagine a world without the queen just because she's literally been the queen since our parents were young and or our grandparents were young like because she was roughly the same age as my grandmother so a little bit like younger but Mm -hmm. still you know she literally lived across the 20th and into the 21st century like that's such an extraordinary achievement so anyway and also i mean i will say that on a deeply personal level it's also just that the queen looked like my grandmother so there's a whole bunch of emotions mixed up in this whole dynamic but i'm still trying to figure this out because i'm like you know for
1: our podcast and everything you realize she was not a queen she was the queen right you realize that i do realize that (laughs) We,
0: we are but lesser lights to the sun that was Queen Elizabeth. Like, we here at, we queens here at Queen of the Bees are but lesser lights compared to her. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, we are little pinpricks in the great galaxy. <laughs> and there's there was a sketch from the comedy show The Kids in the Hall way back in the day when What's-His-Name was playing Queen Elizabeth. Mm. Or he was playing a drag queen pretending to be Queen Elizabeth, and he said mm-hmm. something to the effect of, like, from one queen to another, and he was addressing <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. So obviously I here at Queens of the Bees realized that, you know, she was not a drag queen that we know of, <laughs> nor was she even a particularly notable gay icon, really. I mean, other than the fact that she had queen in her name. I don't know. I just suspected a lot of gay men had a lot of attachment to the queen as this elderly grandmother figure. And I mean, mm-hmm. all of us who are gay men have, you know, a particular attachment to the old ladies in our lives.
1: And, you know, and she, of course, in her way, a very powerful woman. We tend to like that. We do
0: like that. So I mean, there are. I think there are good reasons. And, Of course, she wore the most gorgeous outfits and like mm-hmm. glorious, gaudy, beautiful objects at the same. You know, there's a there's a lot of reasons why I think the good queen, the late Queen Elizabeth, was and is a gay icon. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not in the same in a very different way than Diana, who obviously yes. was a also a gay icon, but for a very different set of reasons. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of gays have had fun, sort of implying that. Diana is going to be having fun with the queen in the, in the afterlife like, <laughs> and, and not particularly generous to the queen. Too. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And I will say that it's going to be very difficult for me to actually call Charles King. Like I still can't believe that we now live in the world of King Charles the Third. Like,
1: yeah i'm already saying i'm not going to be able to say it i can't i yeah I, it just comes out as prince charles just i know that's been, what i said it's been that way for so long
0: <laughs> i mean it is truly impossible it will be i'm not exaggerating when i say it is impossible for me to actually call him king charles like i just i just don't think it is possible but anyway I don't want to go on too long about my eulogizing of Queen Elizabeth II well sure you do I would gladly make this entire (laughs) podcast about my eulogizing of Queen Elizabeth II (laughs) but again I do think that as with so many figures I'm thinking about like Betty White for example um I'm thinking about these older grand dames of that particular era who are leaving the stage of life like I think that there is something for a lot of gay men who grew up in the 80s and 90s like they are the same age roughly as our grandmothers. Like, I think that there is something collective about that mm-hmm. experience. And like, there are ways in which like fake fi- public figures like this kind of help us to process our grief, mm-hmm. like collectively. I don't want to intellectualize it too much. Cause I think that that's of limited utility, but I do think that, you know, part of what makes figures like Elizabeth so important to us, even Americans. Cause obviously why should Americans give a shit about the monarchy, but we do care about it a lot mm-hmm. despite our protests is that, public figures like Elizabeth because of their longevity because of their stability we attach ourselves to them we Mm -hmm. get remarkably emotionally attached to them so when they're gone it really is very powerful grief that you're processing not just for her as a person but for who she is as, a, as an institution herself.
1: Yeah, and I think it's actually because uh, in America, our, we, we have a leadership structure where the, the person in charge changes so much mm-hmm. that we can't really sort of anchor ourselves to them that it makes sense to look to the monarchy, particularly when you have such a long standing one like Elizabeth, as a kind of anchor. You know, it's like, you know, it's like... I mean, I guess I could do the math, but I'm like, how many presidents have there been since I was born? A lot. Right. Like a thousand of them. Right. (laughs) But how many queens have there been? One. There's been the one. Even just thinking about the kind of house we live in, we call it a Victorian house. Because in America, we still refer to that era of, of building as the Victorian era, despite the fact that she was not our ruler. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I think that there's just something about that that feels just more enduring and therefore more stable and something you can kind of latch on to. Yeah. You know, compared to the system that we actually have here.
0: Right. And like I said, I mean, just to close out, I do think that there is I, I want to talk about this at some point or write about this at some point but there is a unique relationship between gay men and old ladies like you Mm -hmm. see it in the Golden Girls you see it in I mean I know many gay men who are very close with their grandmothers grandmothers especially like obviously with their mothers but there's something unique about the gay male relationship with elderly women Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to make of it just yet but I think that that helps to explain my own emotional attachment to her and why I think that so many other gay men probably had something similar Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know what else to say about that other than say that rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth. Like, I, I, I mean this very sincerely. I'm not being sarcastic. I do think that I grieve her very s- deeply. And as my friend said, she meant a lot to me, and so I'm sad that she's gone. But I'm happy that she led such a long and fulfilling life and that she gave so much of herself to the country that she clearly loved very much. Mm-hmm. Alright, well, give us a moment, and we'll be right back to, to Are You Even Gay? All right, so on a lighter note, it's we're going to return to form because last week Aaron gave me hell for not having seen Wicked on stage before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ignominy of that, I will never be able to live down. But this week, speaking of the theater, I also have something new for Aaron to ask him about. Have you heard of the new drama Engulfing Funny Girl? Uh, nope. Okay, well, <laughs> first of all, Shame on you for not being <laughs> abreast of all this. But I, who will spend far too much time on gay Twitter, have paid attention to a number of things. So, since we last addressed this issue several weeks ago, where Aaron once again was not paying attention to the Leah Michelle, um, Fanny Bryce slash Beanie Feldstein drama, now we have two separate dramas that have unfolded since then. One, Leah Michelle made her widely anticipated appearance and the role that she was clearly born to play. Mm-hmm. And got, like, six standing ovations or some shit. Like, Ryan Murphy was there. Like, there was a whole big thing. So that was first of all. But then, as we were preparing to go on the show today, she apparently was not feeling well and may have COVID, so can't perform. (laughs) So right after her, you know, widely heralded, you know, return to the stage for this role that she arguably was born to play, now she can't because of sickness. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole big thing. And I... I, I anticipate much more to come, but it's just—it's fascinating to me as a scholar and as like a gay man to see the amount of attention that the Twitter gays pay to the whole Leah Michelle phenomenon, right. and like it is truly astounding mm-hmm. how much is going into this right now. Like I find Twitter to be a particularly toxic place most of the time, but then there's stuff like this that I find just absolutely hilarious, and it's just. I don't know what else to say. Like, it's just, like... It's amazing to me how much drama can set around a play that most people probably aren't even going to be able to see for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. But because it's Leah Michelle, because of all the glee hangover, like, right. it's just... And there's just so much going on. So, Aaron, so you've not been paying any attention to this at all, right? Mm, yeah, I've not. Been. So I have to ask, then, are you even gay? I mean, well, I saw six. Doesn't that count for anything? Only because I was there, too.
1: Okay, I guess that's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I also... <laughs> As one brief aside, I'm sure you probably haven't been paying attention to the Don't Worry Darling drama either, correct?
1: Don't Worry Darling.
0: It's the new movie with Harry Styles. And it's, oh, yes, yes, yes. And yes, that yes, whole yes. thing, like, there's a whole, apparently a feud between Olivia Wilde and Florence Pugh and, like, Harry Styles and Chris Pine. Mm-hmm. Harry, did Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine uh, at, yes, the, yes, at the yes. Venice Film Festival, I think it was. And it's just, like, this whole big thing and just everybody's just... So, i assume assuming you have a big painting. I that. mean, I,
1: I heard about that. The whole did someone spit on someone else thing? I, I did hear that. All
0: right. Well, okay. So, I, I will grant you at least a little bit of leeway on that one. I don't want to give you a double header. I don't want to, I don't want to subject you too much <laughs> hey, to
1: Hey, don't it. take away all the fun now. I don't want
0: to give you keep so much opprobrium on you that you flee from the podcast. <laughs> It is, but I, I mentioned all that because I alluded to Ryan Murphy being at Leah Michelle's premiere as Funny Girl. Apparently, people were saying that this is going to be the next season of Feud. <laughs> is going to be the the, ba- the back is going to be the background to our to Don't Worry Darling, which for a movie, which by all accounts isn't even that interesting, <laughs> it hasn't been getting very much reviews. It's the drama mm-hmm. that has been drawing in, it. and of course the gays. We're as some of if you're listening to this podcast, you no doubt know the drama is to gaze like chum is to sharks. Like, it, as soon as you throw it in the water, and by water I mean Twitter, like we will be everywhere devouring it with can, every single moment. Can you
1: say chum on a podcast? Is that.
0: I mean, I, I know you're making a cum joke, so. Oh, Watch your mouth. I mean, if you've been listening to Queens of the Beast for the last two years, I'm 100% sure that this is not the first time I've said "come" on this show. I'm sorry to all of our listeners. I'm not. They, they know what they're getting in for, so it's not like they're going into this as virgins. So anyway, all of which is to say, I will give you a pass, at least being familiar with the uh, Don't Worry Darling drama. Mm-hmm. But I still hope that by the next time, by the next... Bruhaha! that emerges over funny girl i do hope you're a little more abreast of what's going on i promise nothing <laughs> <sighs> queen Elizabeth, if you're listening please give me strength <laughs> <laughs> well that's it we hope we have for are you even gay so if you'll give us just one more moment we'll be right back to give you our social media channels All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in for yet another fabulous episode of Queens of the Bees. I do think that, I always say, I wa- love what we do here. I think we've hit it out of the park this time to allude back to the two episodes we've done about the baseball. Mm-hmm. So we hit this home run, I think is what they call it. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, no, I, I think... Wait, is that football or soccer?
0: That is baseball. Even I know a home yes. run is baseball. <laughs> we could say touchdown, but I don't want to... I, I will not... I will not
1: talk about football. Well,
0: was that about a tight end? (laughs) If there's ever a gay football movie, we'll have to cover it here, but I really hope that doesn't happen. Remember the Titans? Or was that just in my imagination? (laughs) That was probably just in your imagination. But anyway, I think we hit a home run on this one. So thank you again always for listening to us. So if you would like to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TJWest and the number three. You can also follow me on the Instagram at ThomasWest and the number three. And we'll be launching our very own Instagram account for this podcast in the next two weeks. I promise you that. Where we'll be sharing not just our little snippet-sized reviews of the films we're reviewing, but I also we'll be doing daily or quasi-daily updates of things that happened in queer screen history. So that's something to look forward to. I hope you'll follow us there if you haven't already. And if you do have a few moments, please remember to rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts, particularly Apple. I don't know if you know this or not, but... The more reviews and ratings we have, the easier it is to find people, to find our podcast. And since we're still growing, we definitely would appreciate any kind of leg up that you could give us. Now, if you do have negative feedback, or if you have some constructive criticism, please forward that to Erin. I don't really deal with that department, I deal with the compliments department. (laughs) Um, But we will take those seriously, perhaps, after we cry into our tea. I have to ask, Aaron. Do you have any social media channels that you would like people to to follow? You
1: can reach me at TJ Social Media. Yeah,
0: I knew the answer to that, but I feel like it's um, it's incumbent upon me to ask anyway, just in case you're leading a secret double life. <laughs> if you have a secret OnlyFans you haven't told me about or something. No, that's no secret. <laughs> ah, well, in that case. But anyway, we do appreciate everyone who takes the time to rate or review us. Um, for, for, as I've said many times before, for a little podcast like ours that has yet to sort of attain the great fame that we so desperately crave and desire and deserve, that sort of thing helps us. So please, if you have an extra moment, just take a little second to give that little extra click on the iTunes store. So I think that's all we have for this week. I think we've taxed our audience's patience enough. So for Queens of the Bees, I'm your co-host, TJ. And I'm Aaron. And thank you, as always, so much for joining us. And we'll be right back with you next week.